0: From the University of Cambridge, welcome to Declarations, the human rights podcast from the Center of Governance and Human Rights. I'm Max Curtis. This week, we're talking to Dr. Graham Daniel-Willis about human rights in the city, not just any city, but every city.
1: The kinds of groups, the kinds of populations, the kinds of ideas and values that Trump has spoken to as being somehow dramatically wrong are people, ideas, values, practices that are very much about the city.
0: We'll explore the urban jungle as a place, possibly the place where people rethink and fight for their rights, responsibilities and identities. What are rights for in cities versus other places? Who can claim what rights? And how does that affect where people end up living? What does it mean to be human in the urban ecosystem? So let's get down to street level. I'm joined by two of our regular panelists, Talia Zibitz, a master's student in international relations. Uh, Ready for 2016 to be over? Very ready. (laughs) And uh, Eva Milne, who's doing her LLM in international human rights law. Um, Is that field going to exist this time next year?
2: That's
3: a very good question.
0: (laughs) But we'll start off with Dr. Graham Daniel-Willis. He's a lecturer in development studies and Latin American studies here at Cambridge. He's worked in Cape Verde, Sudan, Uganda, Zambia, and Brazil, both as an academic and a policy and NGO worker, too. He's written for the New York Times and the UN Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, but his first book, The Killing Consensus, was published just last year, an ethnographic study of Brazilian police, organized crime, and cycles of peace and violence in Sao Paulo. Uh, Thanks for joining us, Graham. Thanks for having me. Uh,
1: Why view politics through the lens of cities? Cities are places uh, of diversity, of difference, and of all sorts of different collisions of values, I think, right? They're sites of migration, they're sites of new arrival, they're sites of, of disparate relationships with the state. Right. So we have lots of, of reasons that um, cities are changing the very lives of people that live there, but also are sites of different kinds of mobilizations, contestations for the ability to be part of formal politics, or to construct alternatives to formal politics. So they are very much... A lively place to look at lots of these questions. So, um, pardon the pun, but are there any sort of concrete examples um, that come to mind? Uh, well, there there are definitely many different concrete examples. Uh, one of the big challenges I think that that we're dealing with in the study of cities today is the sort of push to take ideas from cities of the global north and apply them directly to uh, to the way we would make sense of cities in the south. That, of course, is a distinction which is fraught in its own ways. Um, but it echoes larger concerns with, with who gets to define what matters. I think you know that comes, of course, very central to the very idea of rights and who gets to define rights and what kinds of authorities do we have in the world today that say which kinds of rights matter. Are we talking about individual rights, collective rights? Um, and our states the institutions that should define what rights mean in practice. Um, how do citizens mobilize around these kinds of rights or not is a big question. What if citizens have been left behind from being granted rights and they see rights in a very different way by constructing them in ways that might contest the very idea of that which is just and right um, You know, as alternative forms of security or of governance or survival? And so, I think there are very clear ways that we need to think about rights even in spite of the state, not just as granted by the state. Mm. So,
0: I mean, one of the most interesting things um, I found in your work is looking at theories of space as something that's produced. Because often, um, I haven't actually lived in a city myself, but you get this impression that they sort of come as is. They've sort of always existed, they're always going to exist. But space is something that's been produced over decades, if not
1: centuries. So how, how does that work? Mm-hmm. Well, there's a, a set of theories uh, that exist which, which consider the city as a kind of process, as opposed to a conclusion or something which is more static. Um, and those perspectives, which we, which we might call um, understandings of the city as, as something which is produced, um, and thinking about it in terms of the production of an urban space, um, speaks to the ways that citizens or people who live in these places are consistently reading, consuming, and rethinking how different parts of cities matter, relating how they matter in different kinds of ways. Um, one example that I often speak to is you know, if I say slum, people who have never been to one of these places have in their mind's eye what, what this actually means. Um, what it means in terms of political action, what it means in terms of the values of people that live in these places, whether they need intervention, whether they need other kinds of forms of emancipation and who would get to define these things. right? So the idea of the city as something which is produced speaks to the very nature of how this is both a subjective thing, but is a subjective thing which is necessarily informed by a set of values which are shared. Um, and the, the larger theories of the sort of production of space speak to how those values are very much undergirded by a the historical moment in which we exist today, which is, of course, a particular kind of capitalist moment.
2: I'm very interested in this idea of cities and space as a kind of vehicle and place in which power relations are played out. Um, And what you were saying, the example comes to mind of the 1971 American Supreme Court decision, Swan versus Charlotte Mecklenburg, when to overcome segregation, it wasn't enough to have um, legal enforcement, it wasn't enough to change the law, they needed busing. Because the cities where African American children went, and the cities where where white children lived, and the schools where they went, were in different places. And so if you wanted to desegregate and change those power structures, it wasn't enough to do it legally. You had to actually change power through space and through physically taking children and putting them on buses.
1: Mm -hmm. I mean, this speaks to the very idea of how the city has been walled in many different ways over time, right? So historically, of course, cities were about walling. We had lots of examples of walled cities. London itself has vestiges of the old Roman walls that exist within the city itself. And Part of the idea of the production of space is to say that there are walls which are symbolic, that people define in particular ways that are not necessarily about uh, the brick and concrete or the brick and mortar kind of wall, Um, and that there are particular needs to to transcend these walls once we recognize um, and appreciate them for what they are and what their foundations might be, whether economic or otherwise.
3: Uh, Graham, just to come back on what you said about the subjective perception of slums, um, I noticed that in your work you use the term informal settlements as another word for a slum.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And slum is indeed an emotive word. Uh, it evokes images of squalid, unsafe environments. Um, and it's a word which we see thrown around in the media and by NGOs, and certainly the United Nations is wielding it. Uh, as a word to publicize the seriousness of slums. I read in an article by Alan Gilbert that doing this opens up Pandora's box. He says that the campaign implies that cities can actually rid themselves of slums, which is not realistic at all. So how important is it to be cautious of your word choice, like slum, Mm. in discussing a right to the city?
1: Uh, It's a very important point, and I think it actually speaks not so much to the need for some kind of an objective term, but rather to the ways that people will use terms that imply things for their own ends. So the UN's use of the term slum is a a justification for a type of intervention, um, which is about upgrading, which is about uh, land tenure sometimes, which is about understanding the slum as that which is a, a problem of substandard housing which is something we could resolve with investment. And that logic then leads to solutions that are public-private or that contain more market logics. But on the other hand, other people have used the term slum, right? So in different ways. So Mike Davis, of course, in Planet of Slum sees it very differently. He tries to use the term to call attention to the forms of capitalist violence that exist in these places. The other alternative, of course, is the, as, as the informal settlement is interesting because people say, well, it highlights the heterogeneity of these places. Um, but then, of course, the critique of that is, well, you're sugarcoating something which is very serious, which is the ongoing, ongoing practice of violence by states, which are um, making distinctions about who deserves to have good housing and who does not, who can live in squalid um, conditions and who must not. Um, and so it, it very much is a question of which term do we use, who is using it, and why would they use it to a given end? There's a large extent
0: to which we sort of prioritize large buildings, for instance, as these solutions to a lot of these problems. I, I, I was thinking of um, the film and the book High Rise. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it was um, in the 70s very much concerned with all these uh, things like housing estates and whatnot as a solution to everything. I mean, in the book... Um, There's this new housing estate, the new high-rise, and it creates all of these um, benefits within it. You've got swimming pools, you have shops, you have everything within the high-rise that you could possibly want. Um, And it's this idea that modernism and investment can solve everything. But of course, because it's a sort of quasi-science fiction novel, everything falls apart and you eventually end up with a civil war inside of a a high-rise building. I mean, I think a lot of this sort of stuff comes at the way that we... Not only denigrate places like slums or whatever, but also the way that we valorize certain kinds of areas and structures within cities. I mean, like Talia, you're from London. I mean, in in London, you've got skylines as one of the most central things, you know, got names like the Gherkin or the Shard or whatever.
2: Yeah, um, I think it was a really big deal when they were building the Shard a couple of years ago. Um, I think it has a lot of symbolic resonance as kind of London and the center. um, And you have kind of the whole commercial apparatus growing up around it and the restaurants at the top. And it's very much embedded in this idea of the city, um, which people, when they say the city, the city of London, they're actually referring to the financial district. Um, You talk about working in the city, going to find a career in the city. That means a career in finance. And it's all tied up with these high rise buildings and this culture of going there. um, And then the work that they do there.
1: It's very interesting. It speaks directly to the very idea of London as a global city. And that only really a part of the city of London is what defines its global status. Um, Or at least that part of the city comes to define how it fits internationally. And also the loss of um, certain aspects of a
0: skyline. I mean, one of the biggest events of the 21st century was 9-11. And part of that wasn't just the human cost. A lot of it was the psychological cost. It was the fact, a lot of people talked about how this permanent part of the New York skyline was just erased. But at the same time, if you lost say, an equivalent amount of people in a slum, people probably wouldn't even take notice.
1: Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Yeah. I mean, so what do we value about the built environment in a city is a very interesting part of this, this picture, right? That, that the skyline is something which is central to the imagination of the urban planner, right? And, and the question then becomes, under what logic does the urban planner work? What is the urban planner preserving or or allowing?
2: And yet recently, I think that we've seen these sites of um, kind of skylines and high rises that maybe were once held up as the pinnacle of the city have become sites of protest. Occupy Wall Street in the United States was the first sustained public protest there since the Vietnam War. And you have this huge inequality, I think, coming out with the recent election. There's been a lot of analysis of it um but instead of being held up as um proof of the success of the city you now have these high-rise financial districts seem to epitomize the inequality of the city um and bring up these questions of rights and who has them
1: mm-hmm. i mean it's a central point right occupy was 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 about occupy wall street wall street central to the define, to defining what matters in a place like like new york and it's very interesting of course that the the protest and the ways that people Um, concentrated that protest in a park that was actually owned by a private corporation um, was very interesting, and that essentially the city had very little ability to sustain that. Even if it wanted to, it became a question of private interests as a dominant force over the public interests. I think, Eva, in
0: um, Scotland, there's also this narrative of Unlike Occupy Wall Street, where people are occupying the specific part of a city, you've got in Scotland this idea that Scotland is occupied by an entire other city hundreds of miles away.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a very interesting point. I would draw here on what you talk about, Graham, in historical abandonment. Um, so if I understand correctly, that's when you say that when states have left behind certain people to Die ultimately in the absence of security and good infrastructure and people need to find ways to survive. And certainly in Scotland, I mean, Glasgow has been labelled the least peaceful major urban centre in the United Kingdom with the lowest life expectancy in the UK, as reported in 2007 by World Health Organisation. And why is that? Well, a report released last year actually noted that factors like overcrowding, poor city planning and indeed a democratic deficit, which is what you point to Max, um, have have contributed to what is termed by commentators as the Glasgow effect. And obviously this is a very politicised issue now in the wake of perhaps another independence referendum following Brexit. So yeah, it's very interesting to see how the politics of power play out in a city closer to home.
1: Glasgow is a very interesting example too, because it it speaks to the ways that some people have been left behind in a post-industrial city. Absolutely, The extraction of wealth from that place sent to somewhere else. And when that form of extraction closes, it leaves those people behind. And I think that's where we see a lot of that happening in Glasgow today. So there's a very central economic question to this too. We need to ask, well, what are the ways that the democratic deficit is intertwined with a sort of economic deficit,
0: mm. and one of the ways that people are trying to sort of reconstruct that economic deficit is through technological innovation. Um, how do you think technology is changing the way that we experience and see the city, and also how people are trying to um, improve them?
1: Mm. It's a it's a central point, and I think it's something that um, that a lot of uh, a lot of researchers are trying to make sense of now. Um, if we see the city as a space that is being constantly produced by people, consumed by people as they walk, move through it, um, and value certain parts of it and not others, we of course have different ideas about who who becomes dominant in that process. Um, but what is very interesting when it comes to the internet is the ways that, that the production of space becomes also represented on a different plane. Um, which, is, uh, which is a space of representation that is very different, that can be very easily curated, and which, um, which comes to, again, feedback to the way the city is produced. So how, how it might matter that people are checking in on Foursquare to a particular coffee shop in a gentrifying space of a city very closely interlinks those processes with, um, with the internet and, uh, and the ways that cities are changing. And of course, there are new industries that are very much a central part of this, like Lyft and Uber and Airbnb, that are transcending the city themselves in in an odd kind of way. Or even like Pokemon Go, the fad that spawned a thousand dissertations. Right.
2: What you say about Uber is very interesting, because to me, so much of the city, living in a city, is your ability to get around it. And I was talking to my friend who did his dissertation on Ronald Reagan in the United States, and he had to go to the Reagan Presidential Library in Los Angeles. And he doesn't drive, and he was telling me how he couldn't get anywhere. And he put it in, he phrased it such as, the right to move around your city just doesn't exist there if you don't have a car and you don't have the means. And I mean, if you think about it, we call it public transport in London. There's this sense of public ownership. And in the recent mayoral election with Sadiq Khan, um, who owns transport? Who can use transport? The hop affair. These are all really contentious issues for people who live in a society um, in a city. And something like Uber does seem to provide a technological solution to this kind of lack of access that can exist.
1: It's interesting. How, how does it provide for certain people and perhaps not for others? It becomes a central part of this, which is actually no different than the way that the tube works today, right? That it very much is a question of who can afford to use it at certain times of the day, from where, for how long, for how many trips. It's a central issue. How does public transport itself become a sorting mechanism for Who can be in these places? And Uber actually is probably a part of the same kind of a process.
3: I just want to note here that we're mentioning the word right and the phrase right to a lot. And are we talking about a moral claim here or a legal right?
1: Hmm. I think if we are looking towards some of the larger theory of these ideas of the right to the city, what we're thinking about is less a sort of juridical right or a right that is enshrined in United Nations. proclamations or other kinds of uh, formal institutional declarations, then that's very different than imagining a different kind of a right. A right which might be something about uh, making people central to the city as opposed to making capital central to the city, which speaks directly to the very idea of the city of London being only really defined by one component of that city. And that the idea of, of a right which is something perhaps utopian, but also hopeful, says something about an alternative possibility, um, which is not necessarily placing capital at the center of the city, but rather the interests of a collective notion of what might be good.
2: And I think that utopian aspect of the city and the right to the city links to human rights more generally, um, in a really important way. In Samuel Moyne's book, The Last Utopia, which is this kind of landmark history of human rights, um, he calls it a utopian ideology. It looks to what rights people could have and the way society could be organised, and it's this kind of mobilising effect to create change um, rather than something that represents the status quo.
0: Moving uh, deeper into this area of human rights in the city, I mean, uh, Graham, you've talked a lot about how um, in Brazil, in a less hopeful mode, a lot of people are talking about human rights for the rights, uh, human rights for the right kinds of
1: people. What does that mean? there's a there's a, a wide backlash I think throughout <clears throat> a lot of uh, Latin America for sure and and as I understand in other regions uh, against the very idea of the sort of liberal right right the, the the idea that that human rights are somehow universal, and the pushback comes really to uh, to perceptions of how those rights have been applied to populations which are themselves persistently threatening so prison populations or Afro-Brazilian population, poor parts of cities, which for uh, people who have wealth, perceive those populations as very threatening and as problematic. They tend to see people who are using the language of rights defending those populations. They've come to believe that to push back against the very idea of rights is to push back against the people that are threatening them. And so we have this, this, this other kind of notion, right? So human rights for the right kind of people being, let's put rights where rights belong. The idea that there are valuable people and, and unvaluable people, and it's right to have rights for good people.
0: And I think that plays a lot into the idea of um, the city as this place where there are contested ideas of order and disorder and what what's valuable in order? What What's the point of having an ordered city? To what extent is that even possible? And when does disorder become something that's valuable as opposed to something that threatens um, a lot of interests in the city?
1: Well, it returns to the idea of the city as being a diverse space, a a space of heterogeneity where there are contesting interests. Contestation is not necessarily a bad thing. We're seeing today, in fact, that this very election in the United States is driving many people back into politics. The very need to contest what has happened in that election is changing the very shape of politics. Um, and that is very central to the both the idea of cities, but also to how this is playing out in particular kinds of cities. Um, and that says if we just always but be- believed in, say, the idea of liberalism as that which is orderly and proper, we're now seeing the ways that people have been left behind by that kind of order and are contesting it in ways that those people who have benefited from the previous system are finding is disorderly. So it's 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 this very idea that if we if we become too Well, streamed into one pattern of thinking, we are leaving a great deal behind. And sometimes rupture is very important for people to readdress what they think.
0: One of the most um, interesting things that comes to my head is um, another by by China Mievel. I don't know if you know who that is. It's. he got his uh, master's and his PhD in international relations at LSE. And he's this very sort of Marxist thinker. Um, and he's become one of the biggest sci-fi authors of the past decade. Uh, one of his most famous books was um, called The City and the City. And the idea is it's this sort of nondescript Eastern European space, this, this city. Um, but actually within this geographic space, there are two cities, each person inside of it is sort of trained to only see certain parts of the city that meld with their experience. So you've got you know certain buildings, certain clothing styles, the way people hold themselves, um, the way they not only dress, but the way they act and talk. And then living right alongside them, you've got this other half, this other city, and you're not supposed to see the other city. There's the, in this book. It's um, a murder mystery, but the police officer has to go through all sorts of bureaucratic ho- hurdles just to even interact with the other half of the city, which is literally right alongside him. On you know, on a single street, you could have dozens of people, each from one half of the other city, buildings that are sort of crosshatched one to the other. Um, and I think a lot of that speaks to. Something that's, I think, a common experience for people who've lived in cities, this idea that you see and, um, to use China Mievel's phrase, to unsee certain things. I mean, even if you walk by certain neighborhoods or certain kinds of people, uh, you you unsee them. You try and cast your eyes away from that. I mean, do you think that... For instance, you've worked in Sao Paulo, do you think that there are multiple cities within every city with different kinds of people living inside of them who rarely interact?
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <clears throat> I think that it's a, it's a very interesting metaphor, actually, for the way cities actually do exist. Um, that cities are spaces of invisibility, it's very much the case in a place like Sao Paulo. A lot of people who go to Sao Paulo will see one reality when they arrive at the airport on the hillsides around the airport and quickly move to the center of the city, which is very cosmopolitan, which has museums, which is in its own way a very, uh, a very key part of the global economy. And yet, so much of the city is made invisible by the very belief that that is somehow the space that defines the city of Sao Paulo. Um, or that somehow you know, the Shard or the Gherkin or the City of London is that somehow which defines the City of London itself. And so we constantly need to remind ourselves that the very process of thinking about what parts of cities matter means that we are allowing other parts of cities to not matter. Um, and that speaks to a very, a very clear idea of, of visibility and invisibility, right? If we appreciate a skyline about a city. What do we not appreciate about a city?
0: And you already touched on this, but um, in the American election, um, which happened very recently, on the one hand, this idea of human rights to the right kinds of people that you've talked about uh, with Brazil, I mean, that could pretty much be the tagline of the entire US election, at least for one half of it. Um, But at the same time, there is this sense in which the election, for a lot of people, revealed this entirely different part of America that, for better or worse, people didn't realize was there. How do you guys think that um, the urban-rural divide played out in this election?
2: It reminds me of the fact, having studied American history, that not 50 years ago, so many American cities were literally segregated. There were two cities side by side. There were two entrances, there were two bathrooms, there were two parts of the bus. So I think there's this legacy of division that is still there in a really tangible way,
0: and they often are de facto segregated, even if not by law. Um, and you, most people in certain areas of the cities, don't have the economic ability or, um, you know, de facto rights to be able to move anywhere. Um, I have a statistic here that uh, 50 years ago, in 1965, uh, about 72% of the U.S. population was living in urban areas, and now it's 82%. The cities have become increasingly coalesced, and part of that, I think, is because of the dynamics of the electoral college with more and more people going to urban areas that sort of prioritizes a certain kind of rural vote, um, and w- which isn't anything new for the electoral college. I mean, it was actually designed in large part to protect the interests of slave-owning states. I mean, how does that play out, do you guys think?
1: I mean, that's a, that's a very incisive and important question, but a very broad one too, right? Mm. Uh, th- th- this election has been dramatic <clears throat> in the way that it has essentially refuted The city itself. The kinds of groups, the kinds of populations, the kinds of ideas and values that Trump has spoken to as being somehow dramatically wrong are people, ideas, values, practices that are very much about the city, right? That gays are somehow not proper, that the African American population is wrong. You know, he speaks to the inner city as being. This kind of a problematic space, right? So much of this is about is about how the city has too much defined somehow what is good in American politics. Of course, the gigantic paradox in the room is that is that well, Trump is both a buffoon, but he's also like a prototypical capitalist who is building skylines all over the world, right? Um, and so and so, there's something here about the way he has hijacked um, a very. A very different set of ideas than that which he himself hews to on an everyday kind of basis. Yeah, he calls um, himself a, a working class billionaire. Right. Which is sort of a contradiction in terms. Right, right. I mean, you know, I Trump wouldn't survive two minutes if he had to live in a rural space, right? And so it's it's a very it's a very odd paradox. It's a very odd paradox that, you know, it re- kind of remains to be seen. But I mean part of the larger question too is that cities, of course, are so central to the global economy today. And rural spaces are increasingly not. Um, even suburban spaces are increasingly not. Right. The flows of people from suburban spaces back into cities is something that's changing the very nature of of suburbia, which of course was about a certain kind of white privilege in the last uh, fifty years. Um, and that's what sh- you know, it's both it's both those sort of elite elite um, white wealthy suburban's and those. Um, and, and poor whites left behind in rural spaces that really pushed this other political vision into, into electability, right? Um, and so, so it's, a very, it's a very difficult, slippery issue that is, of course, bound up in, in, in the Electoral College and all sorts of other historical antecedents that, are, that continue to motivate and define politics.
0: So I think we're gonna have to wrap up in a moment, Um, but one last question. Uh, So we're living in a time of Trump's and Brexit's um, and we don't wanna speak too soon because things like capitalism obviously are very, very resilient. Um, But it is entirely possible that we're standing at the beginning of the end for neoliberalism, this sort of particular moment in history uh, we all live in that's marked by free trade, privatization, deregulation, austerity. So if that's the case, if we're starting to see this sea change away from this particular form of capitalism, at least, um, what do you think cities might begin to look like in the future?
1: Well, uh, we are definitely in a moment of something new. And I think a big part of this picture has so much to do with a larger shift in capitalism, right? Which is to say that the ways that states have been slimmed over time since, since industry started, started to move other places, since we had the Washington Consensus, since we had um, union busting, since we had a lot of these kinds of larger practices of, of sort of state phobia and market logics. That's being heightened to a whole new degree, I think, by forms of technology and by who controls technology. So technology, of course, and the internet is should be seen as a public good, but it increasingly is defined by private capitalist interests. And yet, and yet, the inter- those interests transcend the state in many different ways today. There are lots of debates about you know, how technology is or is not more powerful than Washington today. And that's an active debate, right? Does the NSA have access to, to the data of Facebook or not? Perhaps. Certainly, Brazil, Mexico, you know, South Africa do not have access to the data of Facebook. And, and so it's become also a question of which states actually matter, I think, and which cities within states actually matter. Because of course, cities are the places where technology is most intense, where use is most intense, where data is generated. And that data is, of course, what is valuable today, that It is so central to the, the project of technology and is not controlled by states in any reasonable kind of way, the way it may have been through censuses or whatever historically. Um, And so that is a way, a very clear way, that, that states around the world are increasingly becoming irrelevant in the face of new technologies. How they maintain, push back, or contest that becomes a very important question.
0: This has been a fantastic discussion, but I'm afraid we're out of time. All that remains is for me to thank Talia Zibitz, Eva Milne, and this week's guest, Dr. Graham Daniel Willis. And thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, like us on Facebook to see the latest episodes as they're released. And if you're in the Cambridge area, please drop by for some of the fabulous events going on here at the Center of Governance and Human Rights. Join us next week where we'll continue to discuss politics, current affairs, and what they mean for human rights here on Declarations, the Human Rights Podcast.